All right, we've got Ivor Cummins all the way from Ireland. I want to apologize, you know, for you guys. We don't have a translator uh, service attached to our iPad, our, our uh, podcast yet, so you might not understand the language he speaks. Reportedly, it's English, but we have we might have to work through that. But another thing, Ivor, I got a question for you. You do not have any picture of you of you in a white coat, no stethoscopes. You don't have a PhD in nutrition. What gives you the right? I mean, there are big words in medicine. I mean, you have to you have to understand words like gluconeogenesis and hyperinsulinemia. Those are big medical words. What gives you the right as an engineer to delve into making comments on nutrition and health? I mean, what I mean, are you crazy? Who's going to listen to you? Yeah, that's a good question. Now, Sean, I'll have to say uh, I'll speak really slowly as well to make up for the uh, outrageous accent I have. Is, is that okay? Is that working? I can I can understand. Yeah, I've, I've been to Ireland. I understand some of that stuff. But uh, the average person, I don't know. No, but I'm just um, kidding. You know, I mean, this is a thing, Ivor. I mean, you know, we got so many people that are they're weighing in on this stuff, and you know, it's like, you know, if you are a smart guy and you can read, you have the right to 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 participate in this discussion in humanity, in nutrition, in human health, and that's my view. And I'm glad there's guys like you and Dave Feldman and other guys that are coming from Amber O'Hearn, coming from fields that aren't traditional nutrition because unfortunately i say i i kind of have an okay understanding of nutrition but uh despite of the fact that i'm hampered by a medical degree (laughs) (laughs) yeah it it is a a slight handicap all right but as you as you well know you can work through that difficulty and and emerge from the other side but uh no the thing is we're we're facing the democratization of medical science in the last 10 or 15 years and of course the internet is bringing it and uh, the access to scientific papers and studies and I have countless friends now who are doctors and even professors and people in the family and they acknowledge that they did not in college learn some of the crucial things around nutrition and health and they realize now that it underpins chronic health or or chronic disease Uh, and it just doesn't really get covered uh, interestingly, uh, I know a professor of medicine, a really smart guy, well published, and a few years ago when I was discussing my discoveries from my research, uh, he asked me, well, you know, Ivor, you're saying it's not cholesterol that's important and, and it's not fat in the diet that's a problem, but, but if it's not those things that we've known, so to speak, for, for 30, 40 years, well, what is it then? And I said, well, it relates more to insulin signaling. And he looked at me in confusion, genuine confusion, and he said, like, what, for diabetics? And he only actually knew insulin as a kind of a medication for diabetics. He, he did not register in any way that insulin connected to disease. It was only a medication. So I thought that was one of the most powerful illustrations, how even a multi-published, really smart guy with huge experience had not yet touched on the universe of insulin dysregulation. Uh, so there's gaps. There's gaps there. Well, I mean, there's gaps, and and you and, and again, you talk about having access to you know literature. You know, we can all do a PubMed search and so on and so forth. But there's a shortcoming of that, and we know that much of what gets researched doesn't get published. And there's a lot of sort of things going on behind the scenes, and a lot of the data is not being released to the public. Can you comment on that a little bit, or do you have any experience with that that sort of knowledge? Yeah, that that is a problem. And in my first few weeks, uh, five or six years ago, when I got poor blood tests and three doctors in succession, it was quite quite clear to me that that they did not really know what these blood tests meant. 
and how to address them and how to resolve the causes for them. So I went and researched myself because I've come across this over my 25 years as a, a leader in problem solving with, with large engineering teams that often you meet so-called experts and they're not sure what's going on in a certain problem and then you've got to go in yourself. And it's not that hard if you've been doing it for de decades. So when I went in anyway, I found in the first couple of weeks I was frustrated by constantly coming up against papers on cholesterol and other things that I could clearly see when I looked through the data were biased. So in other words, the abstract claimed something but when you actually went in deep into the data and the supplementary data tables, you know, the abstract was clearly biasing towards uh, an opinion and the data spoke differently in many papers. Um, so I, I just followed my historical expertise and I dug, dug, dug back 50 years through all the papers that, that had data which I could triangulate and put together and resolve my issue. And I did. It was a few weeks of, of hard work. Uh, but you're absolutely right. The papers are biased in their um, in how they look at the data, how they summarize the data, and how it gets into the soundbite at the top of the paper. And then you've got other biases where you set the conditions for the experiment. And I'll just give one example came up yesterday. They had uh, a team had a paper showing that with uh, a number of men or menopausal, I think, postmenopausal women who were obese and uh, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistant, uh, they showed that eating early in the day versus later in the day, you got much more weight loss on a 1400 calorie diet. And it was a randomized trial. The problem was they fed the women approximately 20 teaspoons of sugar each as part of this 1400 calorie diet. So again, they got their result and it may or may not, not be true that if you eat earlier, it's a lot better. But the problem is the diet had 20 teaspoons of sugar, which is clearly an insane diet. And that will massively um, enhance the morning versus evening eating effect. And it will get them the result that they want to achieve. So that's a form of clever bias. Yeah, it's, it's almost, Ivor, it's almost as though instead of testing a hypothesis, they're out there to prove a hypothesis when they design these studies. And I think there's a, I mean, it's a subtle distinction, but there's a world of difference between those two approaches. Absolutely. So in engineering, you, you must seek to disprove your hypothesis uh, very actively, because by seeking to disprove it, the best hypothesis rises, you know, from the ashes and a hypothesis that cannot be disproved with repeat experiments uh, has a very high likelihood of having a real business benefit and, and it will be a true root cause when you fix what the hypothesis says you need to fix. But if you go pr trying to prove your pet hypothesis, which, which does happen in engineering, you have engineers who have pet hypothesis about what's causing a production issue and they do experiments that, as you say, they're kind of lined around supporting that hypothesis. They're, they're inherently biased and small, barely significant, statistically significant results are used by those people to support what they believe in. So it's a faith-based system. Uh, but of course, what you need to do is go in and try and smash the hypothesis, even your favorite one. Try and smash it. And then if it cannot be broken, you know you can take action and move in that direction. And if you keep doing that in a series of iterations, you'll rapidly... Uh, kind of move in and, and, and focus in on the proper root causes, the primary root causes, and then you'll address them.
and that's success in engineering. But 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 in research, it seems to be much more take the orthodox view and then try and continue to support it and continue to get funding because then you're good guys. People like you. Yeah, I mean that's that's, that's pretty clear when you look at it. You know, from a from a you know thirty thousand foot view. You know, and you you kind of you step way back and you can see what's going on. Now you have a. A particular passion, and I know there's a hashtag that you like to use. It's called hashtag LDLBS. And can you talk a little bit about that and what, what, why you're so passionate about it? And, and, and tell the, the listeners what you mean by that. Right. Well, yeah, I know we had some fun with that, Sean, on Twitter. Um, that was that was a kind of a frustration um, because many years ago I discovered that LDL is not meaningless. Uh, I'm, and I'm not saying that. But LDL relative to other much more important causes is so down the line that it's simply an outrage that so much focus went on it, billions of dollars, countless research hours. It would never happen in engineering. It would have been tossed out 30 years ago or 20 years ago in favor of much more important things. So the LDL, yes, is not saying that the whole of LDL and everything around the lipoprotein is complete junk. It's not that. It's, it's the outrageous exaggeration of its importance. And that's going on to this day. And interestingly, what the top guys are doing now is they're quietly reversing from LDL and acknowledging that it has relatively little value. And they're going to LDL particle count, the APOB or LDLP, and saying, ah, this is the important one. But the irony is that's still way less important than many other things and they're hyping that now and the ultimate irony is that disruption in insulin signaling and glucose signaling and all of the big problems actually drive up the apob or ldlp so even the apob and ldlp is hitching a ride on the back of the real causes <laughs> which yeah, is, let, which let's, is more ldlbs Let's put it into perspective, because I know you've done a lot of this stuff, and I've seen some of your work, and it's it's brilliant for you guys that haven't watched it. Check out some of his videos and stuff. But, you know, when we talk about, you know, LDL is a, you know, and most people talk about it in context of cardiovascular disease, and they say LDL is a risk factor, relative risk factor for increased cardiovascular disease at an odds ratio of, you know, 1.1, 1.2, whatever it is. Can you put in some real, real numbers com- and compare that to things you think are more important, like insulin and whatever you whatever you you've discovered and and just kind of give us a perspective of how important or relatively unimportant that is okay well i'll give it a shot top of my head so the uh, helsinki policeman study uh, looked at postprandial or postmeal insulin uh, in a large cohort of men and at the 6 year point there was around 9 times the heart events in the people of the highest quintile or highest fifth of postprandial insulin. Now, like you say, cholesterol might have been 1.2 or 1.3. I mean, that's that's crazy. Right? So we're looking Nine at a, we're, we're looking at like a 20% increase on cholesterol versus a 900% increase on insulin. Correct? Essentially, or maybe 800% 9x. Yeah, but that's it. It's it's order of magnitude. Uh, if you take Reven's study back in 2001, I believe. They took a large cohort of middle-aged people with no disease, and they measured insulin even better. They measured them with a steady-state plasma glucose, which is kind of like a craft test, and it's a very accurate measure of insulin dynamics. 
and they put them into thirds. The bottom third uh, of insulin sensitivity, middle, and then the highest third who are insulin resistant. And basically they saw out of, I think it was, I'll have to think for a moment, around 40 incidents of, of disease and death, cancers, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes. There was zero in the bottom third, the most insulin sensitive. There was 12 in the middle third and 28 in the upper third. And it was massively statistically significant. So for steady state plasma glucose, an insulin-based measure, they saw a 40x hazard ratio or risk multiplier for disease and death, not just heart disease, general disease and death. And LDL in that same study, they had it, it was 1.001x, non-significant. <laughs> I'm not joking. So less than one percent versus four thousand times the the amount. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So Ivor, yeah, have it, have you like looked into kind of like how that came to be in the sense of like where that where that this essential like like fingering of LDL versus insulin um, came from and like why these drastic variances in in like changes why why LDL kind of was the one that like, took the brunt of of the blame for this in those those earlier years versus what we kind of know more now yeah well zach that's an important history and uh, the big fat surprise goes through it and and myself and dr jeff gerber in our recent book eat rich live long we we quickly go through that whole history so one of the problems was that cholesterol was fingered uh, way way back around a century ago because it was in the atheroma it was in the atherosclerotic plaques and they didn't really understand, but they figured, well, cholesterol's in the blood, and it's in these uh, kind of atheroma and plaques that cause heart disease, so it's probably leaking into your blood vessels, right? Mm -hmm. And they did studies with rabbits and stuff that were completely invalid. They caused a completely different kind of plaque, and the rabbits were never meant to be eating what they fed them. But anyway, they had this idea. And then, I suppose, to simplify the story, Ansel Keys kind of got hyper growth into that idea because he came out uh, a researcher in the, in the 50s and 60s who had a lot of influence did some associational studies six countries seven countries study long story short in very weak associational studies he showed that the fat uh, saturated fat intake percentage generally aligned or correlated with the heart disease in six or seven different countries now, he did cherry-pick the countries, and it's invalid for reasons I won't get into. But he strengthened the idea that the fat causes the cholesterol to go up, which does indeed drive the heart disease. And it was a very attractive idea. I mean, it was simple, and humans are attracted to simple ideas. Cholesterol had a 50-year history of suspicion. Now this guy came out and apparently was kind of proving this. And he was showing what the cause of the high cholesterol was as well. So like, whoopee, you know. And a lot of people jumped on it. Now, there were a lot of smart researchers said, hold on a minute, his associational studies are junk. But they were kind of bashed down because the measurement of lipoproteins was a growing science and very exciting. It was easy to measure. So they pretty much went crazy measuring it. They saw the associations and they essentially got excited. Now, in the 70s and 80s, when drugs came along that could directly reduce the cholesterol, that really gave it the hypergrowth because now there was a massive commercial uh, interest 
in cholesterol being the primary cause of note. And and to be honest, the train at that stage just got high velocity and, and has massive uh, inertia. You, you can't stop this train now. Well, we're trying to. So that's kind of a potted history. Insulin was very difficult to measure. And that was what really was a killer. And many different assays got variable results. So insulin was complex. It was not understood. And the assays coming out in the 70s to measure it were, were, were variable. And it was tricky. It's a very small molecule and it's much harder to measure than cholesterol. And that was a killer. I always say to people, it's like VHS and Betamax, right? It doesn't matter what the better technology is. Whoever gets there first and gets out and dominates the market, you try and go, and, and go back against that. And that's kind of what happened to insulin. For you guys that aren't as old as Ivor and I, our VHS and Betamax were something that occurred before things like DVDs. <laughs> yeah. We probably hey, want to... Oh, yeah, I've, I've got a general comment, you know, and this is a theme that, you know, I've seen recurrently, and I know you talk, I'm sure you talk about it in your book, and we'll talk about your, you and Jeff Gerber's book, but, you know, one of the things you, you like to talk about is let's measure the actual disease, let's look at things like coronary artery calcium scans, and one of the difficulties we have is, again, we measure the things that are easy to measure, and, and you know, some of the routine blood tests we have, we've been doing those things for 100 years, that's really old technology, and it is, it is limited in that capacity in the fact that, you know, the things in the blood are constantly changing. There's a lot of things that change those things. And it's just because it's so easy to measure that that's why we continue to do that, even though there are probably far better things that we can measure. Can you talk about how do we get more sophisticated on, on, on figuring out what's going on using these new technologies like the like the like maybe the CIMT scores, the calcium artery scans, and anything else that might be on the horizon that you think uh, potentially will advance our knowledge beyond the you know, the, the stuff we had in the 1920s. Right, John. Well, I'll start maybe with the coronary artery calcification, the CAC score, CT scan of the heart, it's also called. And that's a high-speed uh, X-ray, essentially. And it's a five-minute scan. It's $100 or less now in the States. And you immediately get the best measure of your heart disease, risk for future heart attacks, and risk for all-cause mortality, all in one quick scan. So that's the most powerful and it, it punches massively above its weight because it's so simple and it gives so much amazing data. And basically to give an idea of the predictive power of that, because I always look in terms of actually the multipliers we talked about earlier, that's the way to look at things to see what's worth going after. So the calcification score in a recent College of Cardiology imaging uh, journal basically had people with a zero in middle age had a 1 to 1.6% chance of a heart event in the following 10 years. And people with a very high score over 1,000 had a 37% chance. So now we're talking about a test in a couple of minutes will give you a, a 30x multiplier it's capable of in predictive power. Now, so cholesterol, 1.5. Blood pressure, 1.8. Blah, blah, blah. Let me let me just a couple points to that. One is, you know, the nice thing about that, if you get your calcium artery scan on Tuesday and then check it again a week later, it's, it's bound to be about the same. I don't think there's going to be day-to-day variation. That 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 reflects, you know, a long period of, of disease accumulation or, or lack of a disease accumulation over periods of years, if I'm not mistaken. Now, there are critics of the coronary artery calcium scan that will say that, hey, but yeah, but it doesn't doesn't take into account things like soft plaques. Can you address those concerns a little bit, Ivor? Yeah, that's a that's a, a very uh, 
it's a very deceptive argument. So there's true. It's a half truth, and like most lies and deception, uh, often they have partial truth to make them convincing. So the half truth is, indeed, it's the soft plaques uh, that can often be least stable, and older calcified plaques can be relatively stable, and that's true. But the calcium test is the canary in the cold mine. So basically, it's the tip of the iceberg. If you see no calcium, then there's almost certainly no major soft plaque under the surface hidden to cause disease. I mean, there's only going to be a tiny amount in the vast majority of people with a zero score. If you get someone with a high calcium score, certainly there's going to be a ton of soft plaque growing underneath the surface, under the calcified plaque. So it's the gauge of how much dangerous soft plaque is there. So the people who say that are saying it doesn't directly measure the soft plaque. And that's true in a very sneaky, misleading, liar's way. Because the calcium result tells you how much soft plaque is under the surface incredibly accurately. So it's an amazing test, even though it doesn't measure directly the soft plaque, it doesn't have to. And as I said a minute ago, if you have a zero score, there's still one, one and a half percent heart events. You can still get arrhythmias. You can still have an isolated spot in your coronary tree, you know, that has a big plaque. That can happen. But I always say, don't let perfect be the enemy of very good. So we've got a test that's quick and easy and is vastly superior to the others. But because it isn't 100 percent perfect, we criticize it. And you can see here that that's deceitful. It's not being honest. Yeah, I mean, again, there's there's some very clever people out there that, that will do whatever they can to, uh, you know, take down whatever message you want to do. I mean, that, 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 that obviously, you know, there's people that are pretty smart out there that, that have some agendas. Um, what? Let me ask you another question. Because I've seen now anecdotally reported people with things like coronary or carotid intima media thickness test, you know, mm. the, the CIMT test, where they're actually showing improvements, you know, uh, you know, less thickness, which would which would correlate with less less, uh, you know, uh, plaque, I guess, uh, in those tests, and, and people on you know ketogenic diets and, and carnivorous diets and other things. Can you? Are we able to see any reversal of calcification in the arteries given a, a long enough period of time? Are you aware of any of those things that have happened, or can you talk a little about 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 the carotid studies if you have any knowledge on that? Yeah. Okay. So the CIMT, it's a little tricky and it's it's a little dangerous in some ways because there's a general correlation between higher uh, median medial thickness uh, and disease, but it, it's quite weak. And there were re studies recently where, which showed that CIMT was, was not yet ready to be a really good predictor compared to CAC. And there's a problem in the sense that you really need to look at the amount of plaque and the plaque stability and the amount of disease. And CIMT can be a bit misleading. So, for instance, the Maasai had very thick arteries, right, with, with very thick CIMT, but they did not have heart events because they inherently were robust to events, but they had the high CIMT. So it can be misleading. Now, it's a general correlator, but I wouldn't trust it too much. If it's coming down, it indicates you're probably doing something good. And if it's going up at a significant rate, it indicates you're doing something wrong, but it doesn't predict events like the CAC will. Um, and the Maasai is just, uh, is just one example uh, of a kind of a, an exception. Uh, 
So it's got challenges. Uh, Dr. Gerber uses, I think it's a limited Doppler looking at the carotid bulb and they actually, with the ultrasound, try and image the plaque itself. And again, I'm not an expert on that, but I believe he finds it more dependable rather than the classic CIMT. So maybe that's something people can ask to get. Uh, but I would take CAC as the gold standard. And then if you want to in between CAC scans, you know, kind of go with an easier method and some blood tests to monitor your progress, I'd see it as a secondary way to monitor your progress. The other thing, Ivor, and, you know, because I've, I've played with ultrasound over the years a little bit, and, and it's highly technician dependent in a lot of cases, you know, and so when you look at some of these ultrasound studies, there's, there is some degree of uh, user expertise level that can, can, can impact your scores. Now, with the uh, carotid with the calcium artery calcium scan, I think I, I, I assume it's just a computer algorithm that, that doesn't isn't really user dependent that much. Is that is there some truth to that? Uh, absolutely, it's a computer algorithm. It gets the brightness uh, and for each slice, uh, usually two point five or three millimeter across your torso or your heart, it gets the brightness of calcium and the area, and it builds up an overall mass of the calcium. So you get a volume and a density score. And basically, they the computer characterized it all, and it has excellent reproducibility. And again, hundreds of thousands of people in countless studies over 30 years. It always predicts amazingly, and it's got really good reproducibility as well. So, yeah, it's much more independent. And you're right, Sean, I've heard that as well, that technician dependency is is a big challenge with the with the ultrasound. So, Ivor, just to, to back up just a, a minute um, with the CIMTs and the CACs type stuff, I know, like Sean had mentioned earlier, that we had Dave Feldman on an episode, episode 11, I believe, um, and he's kind of been more or less the guinea pig along the LDL to kind of, you know, point to, like, some of the flaws that we have with, like, looking at some of that stuff, and he's done... Uh, uh, a few, quite a few, the CACs, I think, and then for the CIMTs, which are the ones that are a little more harsh, I guess. So he kind of spreads those out. Um, and he said that of the four CIMTs he's had, uh, it, his most recent one is the one that produced uh, the thinnest artery walls on both sides in terms of the results. So do you think that, because you had mentioned earlier that like the like comparing results to results would maybe be more informative than just a singular test? Yeah, the vector it's moving within w would be better than just a, a one-off test for sure with CIMT, Zach. So he, by getting repeat CIMTs, if he saw a flat line or even a slight increase, uh, or let's say he saw a slight increase, it'd be very hard to say that's definitely a problem. But by getting a slight decrease that's kind of, you can be pretty sure you're doing something good. I mean, there's no data that says slightly decreasing your CIMT could in any way be anything other than a positive sign. So it's a really great sign if it's actually coming down. And it's highly unusual because with age, like with CAC and everything else bad and insulin resistance, with increasing age, you generally increase. It's only the people who are doing non-orthodox -or things like dropping grains, dropping sugars, doing low carb, getting replete in magnesium, getting UV exposure. The people who are doing the special stuff are the only cohort who are seeing 
actual reversal of age-related phenomena. So yeah, I'd say the CIMT that's decreasing for him fits exactly along with all of his excellent work and research uh, and validates it. And his CACs are zero. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, CACs are a point in time, so they're only a couple of years apart. So I mean, they're just zero. You, you can't go below zero. So it'll take much longer time to see what happens with CAC. Yeah, I, I mean, I saw the movie, and I know you're a big proponent of this movie called uh, The Widowmaker, and it talks about the history of the coronary artery calcium scan and some of the some of the some of the science behind it, some of the criticisms of that. And it was a great movie. I would encourage everybody to watch that. And since that has come out, have you seen an evolution in the utilization of the CAC test? And 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 if so, does the early hypothesis hold up? I assume it does because you're still talking about it. But I, I assume that we're getting more data. In regard to that, and just to remind you on that one question, have you seen anybody with showing signs of reversal of calcification over the long term? Right. Well, it, that's that's a question I often get asked, John. So there are cases. Uh, William Davis Wheatbelly discovered many, many years ago that calcification was the best test, and he began to use it widespread. And with his patients, uh, he is one of the only people published who showed regression in calcification. Now, the complication is it was six or seven years ago, and it was in his period where he believed strongly in medications and low LDL. But what he was doing essentially was he was giving vitamin D, fish oil, no grains, no sugars, and all the good stuff, and also using statins. And what he showed was he got around, uh, I don't know the figures, but around a third of people actually reduced, around a third of people stayed flat, and maybe a third or less of people slightly increased. But compared to the normal progression, uh, mathematically, that's seen in humans with calcification, it's always up and to the right. It was a landmark paper to show he could intervene and basically stop and even regress in a, in a large percentage of his people. So that's published paper. I think it's a therapeutic approach of vitamin D, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there is very little other data because the whole medical system believes, and there are papers that are actually titled this, that calcification is progressive and inevitable and can be mathematically modeled in humans. I have a paper on that. Well, I it's mean, that's just like saying diabetes is a progressive disease that never goes away. I can tell you, I, write yeah. a lot of, I know a fair bit about calcium, you know, as an orthopedic guy. And I've seen, you know, cases where we have, you know, uh, myos, you know, myositis ossificans and and calcium in the tissues that does has gotten smaller, and and I've seen that happen. And you know, our bones obviously can remodel, so we do have capacities to, you know, move calcium in and out of the tissues. We have all kinds of mechanisms to do that. And I guess you know, if you're in, if the circumstances are if the system and the environment is right, I suspect it can happen. You know, it may take, you know, it's a slow moving process. It's not a you know, you don't you don't move calcium you know, massive amounts of calcium in a period of a few weeks, you know, it's probably over a course of years. So my suspicion is probably it can. It'd be interesting to see if we get people on what we consider the right therapy, whether it's diet or drugs, uh, to see how that does over time. Yeah, and exactly, I'd agree. And certainly you're right. The dynamics there are very slow. It'll be slow leaching of calcium back into the system, not driven by a biological need. And that's probably the other thing. The calcium is brought in as a tissue response to injury essentially and you know if you stop the, the tissue or injury 
it's not like the body has an imperative to get that goddamn calcium back out. It doesn't really. It'll just leach out or maybe just stay there. So absolutely agreed. Interestingly, uh, I met a guy at the PHC UK, you know, Sam Feltham and Asim Malhotra, the, the group in the UK. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're yeah. familiar with those guys. I've never met him, but I'm, I'm sure I'm familiar with their work. I think work, I was sure. on Sam's show a while back. Um, was, didn't he do – he did uh, – the he did an experiment on himself a while ago where he just ate like a, a a pretty significant caloric intake of kind of a keto style diet and then did the opposite for 30 days with like a really high carb diet and kind of mapped the results absolutely zach yeah he, he used to run the smash the fat podcast mm-hmm. yeah i think you were on it yeah well he did that experiment and he showed all the photos and he put on the weight with the carb and he did five thousand calorie diets for a period of weeks uh, I think he, he more than doubled his triglycerides on the healthy carb diet I think without excess calories uh, or more than doubled I, th- I think he might have said his trig over HDL went up a factor of more than three so yeah he, he was all doing those experiments in the old days but now they have this PHC group in the UK and it'll be expanding worldwide and it's full of medical practitioners and specialists uh, so it's all across its board it's very it's very very clean there's no kind of quackery whatsoever and at a conference at the weekend and i dropped in from prague and uh, it was fantastic but i met a guy there who came up to me all excited and he said iver iver i saw your stuff and i got a calcification scan and i said oh super uh, what you get and he said i'll tell you in a moment you know my cholesterol has been for some time and i said what and he said 13.9 millimoles total. Oh, now that, yeah. that's huge. Yeah. <laughs> do you know how to, do you know how to convert that into US units? I, I can. It's 140 by four. It's around 550, wow. uh, roughly. <laughs> I, I I need to check that. That's top 500 approximately. Okay. And his his total to HD. I immediately asked. Well, geez, your HDL can't be crazy high. So your ratio must not look good. And he said, No, my ratio of total to HDL is nine. That's huge. It should right, be below sure. five. Double, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> his trig over HDL was great, though, and his, all his inflammatory markers were great, and he was he was slim and feeling great. But he had this insane cholesterol. So he uh, got a calcium test. He was 62 years old. You know what the result was? Zero. Zero, yeah. Awesome for him. Because guy's in great shape. Um, and then, interestingly, seen as cholesterol, if people are worried about high cholesterol, even if I know it's a very fallible marker, this guy told me in excitement that he'd seen the book and he saw what you could do if your cholesterol's high and you're not comfortable. You know, it's people's choice. It's free world. Um, he actually switched over to fish and avocado and mono and he played with his diet. And his cholesterol is now down to around 6, which is around 240. So it shows you how dynamic it is just by playing with your diet, just like Dave Feldman's work. What it actually means, that only the CAC will tell. Yeah, and just to kind of follow up on that a little bit too, so like with his inflammatory markers being so low, would you look at that as being a much more kind of uh, valuable piece of information than say like the, the mass fluctuation in his actual cholesterol score? Because like I think when we were talking to Dave, he had said something about like he's much more concerned as to whether that, that inflammatory markers are chronically high versus at a really low rate in terms of really kind of recognizing whether there's like something to be concerned about in the first place? Yeah, absolutely, Zach. I would say um, 
the HSCRP, serum ferritin, uh, GGT, the liver enzyme, uh, post-meal insulin and post-meal glucose. And there's a whole array of really solid measures that if, you're, if you get them all right and then you have an isolated high LDL particle count, it, it very likely means nothing. You can never say never, but it very likely means nothing. And again, the irony is that LDL, I have a study there, the Heinz Nixdorf recall study. I, I went through it in my talk in Prague on uh, Saturday. And basically, it shows that for a higher LDL, you get slightly increased calcification in a huge cohort. But then the very highest calcification, most disease guys, the LDL dropped back down again. So I just showed you can have a guy on the right of the graph with huge disease with an LDL of X, and you can have a different guy on the left-hand side of the graph with no disease with an LDL of X. So that's the problem. What use is a metric if you can't depend on it? And LDL particle count, the new poster child for cholesterol, yes, it's mainly high and bad, if you drive it with metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance syndrome, I mean, you should see the graphs of low HDL and high LDL particle count. They're practically twinned. So LDLP high can, can be a bad thing if you're driving it with hyperinsulinemia. But equally, the sports people now, it's coming out more and more, and the lean mass hyperresponders are super fit, low inflammation, in incredible health. And for many of those, a high LDLP goes with that turf because of the nature of the way they transport the triglyceride in these LDL particles. So it's not much good of a measure if it can be bad when it's high, good when it's low, and bad when it's low, good when it's high as well. <laughs> I mean, that's not an engineering measure, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, we've got to put all this stuff into context. I know, I believe it's you, Ivan, I've read some of your stuff. I think you talk about the ketavans and their APOB <laughs> levels and saying, well, you know, it's bad, it's bad, but look at these guys, you know. So can you can you the, talk about that a little bit? The ketavans are hilarious because people always criticize when you pick one study and they say, well, that's just one study. And there's some truth in that. Uh, you know, if there's lots of other studies that conflict. But the ketavans are fascinating because... The Catavans have the same or higher LDL particle count as the Americans, right, in a paper published back in the late 90s, and they're all scratching their heads. And the point is that with the same LDL particle count on average, or actually slightly higher, they have no heart disease, essentially, and no chronic disease. They're a poster child for incredible health. And the Americans have some of the highest heart disease in the world. So you take two extremes of heart disease and the LDLP is the same for both or even higher in the guys who are much healthier. So you know at that moment, it doesn't prove LDLP is irrelevant, but it proves it's completely incapable of being a primary root cause in itself. And of course, the catavans, to your point, Zach, when you asked the question a minute ago, the catavans insulin and their glucose is in their boots, right? That's, that means that means that's translated to means really low in in Irish speak. So. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I mean it's incredibly low. I mean the the numbers were really funny. In fact, the catavans had half the fasting insulin of Swedish uh, adults in the seventies and eighties when they did the study. They were half the fasting insulin. And those Swedish adults in the 70s and 80s were not like 2015 Americans, right? They would not have been in 
too bad an insulin state back then, but the Catavans were half their fasting insulin. And they also looked at physical activity of the Catavans versus low, medium, and very high physical activity Swedish men, and it did not explain anything. So they were scratching their heads over the low insulin, the low glucose, and the high LDL particle count, and wondering, what's going on with these guys? But you, I, and, and Zach, uh, we know what's going on, right? It's, a, it's an ambiguous marker. Sometimes it's driven up by hyperinsulinemia, and it means really bad things. And sometimes it goes up because you're a lean mass hyperresponder. So it's worth looking at, and you've got to be careful and keep an eye on cholesterol if it goes really high or moves if you change your diet uh, in an extreme way. It's not to be ignored, but it needs to be in the context of what we're talking about. Yeah, I think that I think that I mean that sort of general sort of uh, concept just rings true in so many of these things out there. It's so constant context dependent. I know Dave Feldman likes to talk about what is the system doing, what is not what just what is this one biomarker doing. I know there was another trial. I like talking about these tribal populations. I think they were called the Decimi out of uh, South America, and they I, I believe recently, maybe a year or two ago, people were saying, well, these are the people with a best cardiac health in the entire planet and everybody was celebrating you know that they run around and they you know they eat a bunch of plants but then they go they hunt monkeys and eat monkeys every day but the one thing that was kind of unique about them was that they had a really high a relatively high level of high sensitivity c-reactive protein and again we hear you know hc you know hscrp as being another risk factor for cardiovascular disease but but again these people had high levels of that and some people speculated well it's because they're all inf- you know, infested by parasites and stuff. So again, it's the all these markers are context dependent. And you know, to Ivor's point, you've got to look at multiple factors. And I think if you're not looking at insulin, you know, you, you, you for almost any of this stuff, you're kind of crazy. And then you know, even more importantly, uh, you know, let's look at what's going on at the tissue level. You know, let's see what's going on in the coronary vessels. Let's see what's going on in the, you know, whatever tissue of choice, if you're interested in that particular disease, you know, it's, it's, unfortunately, it's difficult to do brain biopsies and renal biopsies and all these other things. So we have these proxy measures, but the proxy measures are, again, highly context dependent. Yeah, absolutely. And proxies always carry that inherent danger if you don't triangulate and look at all the different variables, exactly as they say, Sean. Uh, but the good thing about CAC is it's not really a proxy because it's looking directly at the disease process. Uh, and that's, that's the advantage there. Uh, I think the Catavans actually are a similar tribe with amazing health. They measured guys in their 70s, and they were just shocked at the lack of calcification, which again ties in. Um, It's just, it's an incredible marker. But yeah, triangulate, look at all the measures. The HSCRP, in another study I have, it failed utterly uh, head-to-head against CAC. CIMT also went down pretty, very poor, and brachial index, I think the ankle brachial index. Right, yeah, blood pressure I'm, differences, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not too close to that one, but that one failed. And the summary of the paper was, yeah, the only one that stood out a mile was, was the calcification. And all the other ones actually were weak to the point of not being very useful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting because we, we have a, you know, and I'm not a primary care physician, but I, but I kind of know what what I see when I, when I saw patients that, uh, you know, came from there. And I mean, the standard panic, you know, medical evaluation would be, you know, a routine lipid panels and some, uh, you know, standard chemistry studies, uh, a blood pressure test, and maybe a BMI. And I think that is such a, 
it misses so much that I think, you know, if you said, well, let's, let's say we're going to take a waist to height ratio. We're still going to check your blood pressure. We're going to, we're going to get your insulin level uh, or maybe calculate your homo IR score or, or whatever. You know, there's several ways to calculate insulin sensitivity and then perhaps, you know, get a, get a vessel study, you know, and I think, you know, maybe we would, we would, we would advance our knowledge by 30 years because we're still in the dark ages of, you know, like I said, that, that, that whole cholesterol is the bad guy in all situations and, and all the, you know, the, the, the drugs that went into supporting that is really, I mean, set the human population in Western back, you know, you know, pretty far back with regards to health. It, it's, it's actually, yeah, it is actually a tragedy and that's why I was so angry about it and the LDLBS and all that was just to kind of wake people up. Uh, again, it's not worthless, but it's quite frankly outrageous that the, the, the coverage it's got, cholesterol, over the last 30 years, it, it's really funny. Uh, well, it's funny in a sad way. But, yeah, it, the, the waist-to-height ratio is excellent. Uh, Ted Naiman, <laughs> I, I know you know well, um, he ba- I think he's calibrated. He just looks at a patient coming in the door, and he pretty much has their insulin roughly uh, estimated uh, based on waist-to-height. And it's so easy and vastly better than BMI, vastly better. Uh, there are people, though, who have a okay waist-to-height ratio, like David Bobbitt, my supporter, and all of his blood metrics look good. In fact, everything, the only one that was a slight warning of the massive disease he had was the triglyceride to HDL ratio, really. His LDL was around 130 or something. His trig HDL ratio was 1.7 or 1.8. So again, it would be seen as okay below two, but it was the only one that, that for me really was nudging into the danger area. He did not have insulin. He had HbA1c at 5.3. He had glucose around five, even though he was a, a type two diabetic with enormous diabetic damage, but they never measured his post-meal glucose. And when they began to measure after his CAC result as post-meal glucose, it was going over 300 milligrams. Wow. Yeah, and his insulin, of course, was never measured because no one measured it. So that, again, would have flagged some issue. Um, but for him, I think what's powerful in his mind is he knows that there's slim, athletic people out there, generally high carbers and doing the wrong thing without knowing it. They can have massive disease, and the CAC in a few minutes will tell them, and they can wake up and say, wow, I followed the rules. I've eaten the food pyramid and lots of whole grains, and I've had all the vegetable oils, and I'm not fat and I don't smoke. And now I walk out and find out I got massive disease, which I wouldn't have known about otherwise. And now they can say, well, hold on. If I wasn't told about the calcification scan, and it's been effectively suppressed, but now I've got it and I know I've got a problem, what about everything else I was told, the healthy whole grains, the vegetable oils? So David would hope for to get adoption of CAC so these people can wake up and realize that, that they, there are many of them have huge disease while not having significant risk factors. Uh, one last, I don't want to go on, but CAC is interesting for me, not from a conspiracy theory, so you can put on the tinfoil hats for a moment, but the reason CAC wasn't adopted for 30 years there's one or there's a few in the Widowmaker movie, uh, like the Mayo Clinic was making a third of its revenue from invasive uh, cat lab procedures. And a team there discovered when they analyzed, if we did a quick CAC on everyone, we could have the number of people who have to go into the expense of invasive. So the management of the Mayo Clinic shut down the project. 
because in fairness, they're managers. They're going to have their revenue. So that's that's one reason. The other problem with CAC is it essentially will disprove the LDL hypothesis because there's around 20 papers with CAC and LDL measured and there's nearly no correlation. So that's another, I think some knowing people in the business know that widespread CAC will begin to raise a lot of questions. That's another reason it's not popular. And uh, like there's a few of these reasons I think that CAC doesn't suit revenue or it doesn't suit the bias and the current failed paradigms of heart disease. It doesn't suit anyone in the orthodox business really. And that, know, that's I've, a big problem. I've, I just listening to that, you know, the, 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 the fact that, you know, coronary artery calcium scans do not correlate with LDL cholesterol with regard to, you know, disease and risk factor. I, I think there's people out there that, that will dismiss CAC because it doesn't line up with the LDL hypothesis out of hand because they're so brainwashed and thinking, well, if it doesn't line up with LDL, it obviously isn't a good test. <laughs> you know? Which is, is a supreme irony. Yeah, I call those people uh, that are living in the fishbowl. And I think they're all together in a fishbowl and they have no idea of the universe of data outside them. And their education system, their CME, continuing medical education credits, a lot of them are farmer sponsored. And everyone is kept in the fishbowl. And they're all there congratulating each other uh, and, and floating around thinking they know everything. And they have no idea that they're trapped in a, in a place where they're missing all of the data. And doctors are too busy. I mean, I know all the doctors I know in Ireland. They are up the walls busy. The system is under pressure. They get a few minutes with each patient. They need a break in the evening for an hour. They're not going to go online like an obsessive guy like me and go through thousands of scientific papers and data tables. I mean, they're, they're not going to be able to. Uh, yeah, I can, yeah, I can speak from experience. I mean, you know, you 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 get you know you expect to see forty, fifty patients a day. You get eight, seven, eight minutes. Sometimes you got a heap of paperwork to do. It is not conducive for that, and it's not the fault of the physician. It's just we've got so many damn sick people, and we keep making more. We got to stop making so many sick people, and that's uh, that's uh, that's a whole key to this stuff. Hey, Ivor, tell us. Tell us about your book. You and Jeff wrote a book called uh, Eat Rich, Live Long, I think is the title of that. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, it sounds like it's a great book. I've heard nothing but good about it. I haven't read that yet, but I can you go ahead and plug your book? Tell everybody how great it is, man. Hey, thanks, Sean, but, but you haven't read it yet. Jeez, <laughs> I, 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 whoa, I don't know, man. I'm going to have to hang up here. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, we, we put a lot of work into it. I wrote a version back in 15. And that's when Jeff discovered me through my cholesterol conundrum video. And we became tight buddies and, and worked together for years. But then in 16, 17, we got a professional editor with David's help, uh, with Carl Mann Agencies in New York, and we got Victory Belt. So we actually, we recrafted it a lot from my anger-filled kind of diatribe at all the stuff we've been talking about. And we crafted it into a book that's, specifically designed to be accessible to ordinary people outside the low-carb movement. Because a lot of people in the low-carb movement, you know, they've gotten quite savvy. So we wanted a book that you could give to your brother who's an accountant who doesn't know much and thinks Atkins is some kind of fad, and give him a book or her a book where you can go through and enjoy it, it's entertaining, and learn about it without it being full of science in the first sections. And then Section one goes through the Histories Act that you asked about. It quite, quite quickly goes through the history of why it was wrong. 
quite quickly goes through to what is correct. That is more about insulin and glucose dynamics and, and eating in a certain kind of way. Part two then goes through really, really clear instructions on how to change your life around to achieve longevity, weight loss, and, and lower disease and, and wellness and vitality and, and joie de vivre, you know, just achieve a better life. Uh, and part two also has a professional chef, 50 recipes, full color. We hired a professional chef to do that, Ryan Turner, and he's excellent. And then part three goes into insulin, cholesterol, CAC, protein, a chapter on cancer uh, causes and, and how to best avoid them and uh, vitamins and minerals that are critical. It goes into deeper science explaining for people who can go there, little more complex, but still approachable. And then part four goes into the appendices. And that's where you get into the more hardcore science for those who want to go there on vegetable oils, on insulin and crafts work. And uh, so we kind of made it like a manual. And Jeff actually particularly wants uh, doctors to be able to access it. So it's something a doc can pick up who doesn't know much about this stuff, sit down and read it and go, wow. So we have 97% five-star reviews on Amazon. There's no fixing there. They're all verified purchasers. And uh, we just need to get the message out because we believe we've written the kind of manual for keto and low-carb uh, as an approach to longevity, weight loss, and better health and wellness, and even mental acuity. I mean... The people walking around at the moment semi-depressed and overweight, it's a shocking percentage. They're missing all their potential. It's, it's truly a tragedy. Yeah, it's one thing that I have seen, and it's, again, for some reason we kind of take mental, mental health and mental disease and we put it in a separate little compartment, but it's, 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 it's just physiology. The brain is an organ just like the kidney is, just like the liver is, and so on and so forth. So how could diet not affect that? To me, it's so crucial. But one thing, you know, and this is one thing that, I mean, when you talked about what's in the book, and it sounds like a ter terrific book, and I hope people will, will will pick that up and take a look at that. But, you know, you talked on cancer. And anytime you say anything on cancer, it's like cancer is some magic disease that we, we have to have special reverence to. I mean, it's to me, it's no difference to, to neurodegenerative disease, to arthritis, to heart disease. I mean, it's just a disease. And when you say cancer and you start talking about you know, maybe diet can impact cancer. You all of a sudden get labeled a crazy person. Can you? Have you? I, I know you've seen a little bit, bit of blowback on that. Can you talk a little about that, Ivor? Yeah, I went through those wars, Sean. I was amazed at how you're not allowed to talk about cancer. I mean, all the I agree with you. Cancer's another chronic disease. It's tragic. It's particularly emotive because of its uh, its terminal nature in many cases. Um, I was shocked at how many nutters came out of the woodwork after me. And and they're not just, uh, there's a lot of anonymous nutters who, who attack anyone who talks about cancer and potentially alleviating the root causes or, or even the disease. But they're joined by very orthodox establishment figures who join with the anonymous nutters. And they come together to attack you in a wave. And uh, I found it fascinating uh, to see the amount of anger out there against talking about cancer and how nutrition may help. It's incredible. It really yeah, it's, is. It's almost as if cancer has gotten gained almost a religious significance among diseases, as if it's some special thing we have to revere and, and, and be scared of. And, and, and you know, I, to me, it's just, you know, a disease, there's a whole bunch of diseases are all awful. 
what you know, nutrition plays a role in all of them. I don't care what you say. Now, whether we know what the right disease, you know, whether you can magically cure cancer with a ketogenic diet or not, is besides the point. I, but I do think we have to address. My view is good nutrition helps in every single situation. If people ask me, does it help with this disease? I said, I don't know, but I will tell you, good nutrition is always a good strategy, and that's my that's my sort of canned, you know, line. You know, fix your nutrition, yeah. good things are bound to happen. Well, e- exactly. And I mean, I have papers and we go through them in the book where Polynesian women in one study had five to eight times lower rates of breast cancer. Now, that's that's 80 something percent lower rates of breast cancer than American women. And when they moved to America within two generations, they're very similar. So, I mean, knowing that. It, you know the environment is massive. And even the people who talk about genetic susceptibility to cancer, they acknowledge that only 10% of cancers approximately are truly genetic. So the environment is huge. And I agree with you. Within your environment, what goes into your mouth is the biggest factor by far. I mean, there's there's pesticides, there's there's petroleum products. The, the, the chimney sweep boys in the 1800s in England had 20 times the risk of scrotal cancer, right? And they accepted that it was the petrochemicals in that delicate area leached into the skin, gave them a 20x risk. Smoking gives you a 20x risk. So they accept that the environment is a massive driver and ancient populations had almost no neoplasms in analysis of mummies. So they accept it. But as soon as you start talking about nutrition, exactly as you say, suddenly the walls go up. You're not allowed to talk about it. And we need to talk about it openly. Yeah, it's like uh, it, it's gotten to kind of that that place where like no, it, it's, it's taboo to entertain the thought that you potentially could have given yourself cancer. Like that just the saying that would be like, you know, something that would get kind of shunned at. It's like, you know, it's it, it's a horrible situation, but um uh, you know, we, we have some control over things like that. And I think nutrition is oftentimes kind of that, that, that focal point where it's something we very much can control. So like there are things that maybe are a little more difficult, like chemicals and things that are going to get put in the air beyond our control, but nutrition isn't, isn't really one of the things that, that needs to come off the table from that discussion. I don't think, um, yeah. Oh, absolutely, Zach. I, I agree. I mean, you know, it's imp- I see it as empowering patients with knowledge based on science. And I only mentioned a tiny snippet there about the Polynesians. But accepting the science and the data and saying, wow, there are ways I could empower myself. But the other side, see the exact opposite. You need to tell the people it's absolutely not your fault and eat all you want and enjoy yourself because you're suffering from this. And it's a very different philosophy. If I got cancer, you know, I would go hell for leather after any environmental or nutritional factor that may help. But the other guys seem to say, no, if you get cancer, we'll we'll look after you with our treatments. But otherwise, just do what you want, you know? Yeah, there's a, there's a there's a little saying when we had in medicine, we would call it, we call it 6PFP therapy, and that would be six-pack and a fishing pole, you know, give, go get some beer and go fishing, you know, that would, that would be, <laughs> I mean, seriously, if people actually would say that, I mean, there's all kinds of crazy things out there, but hey, Ivor, um, without giving away all the spoilers from your book, would you mind listing your top three, four, five things you can do generally in life to sort of avoid dying? <laughs> 
<laughs> or oh. not dying, but but you know, <laughs> maintaining good health. You know, what are your what in your opinion the, the top four or five things uh, that you can do, and then then we'll let you go because you've been so gracious with your time. All right. Okay. Great. Well, just top of my head, we kind of do ten rules, and I won't list them verbatim, but uh, it's just around weight loss and achieving health. And the first three are are quite easy. They're elimination rules. So you eliminate the processed carbohydrates and sugars, and you eliminate the processed vegetable oils. And we won't get into the science here. I'm only listing them. They're no-brainers. And the processed food. I mean, not Spanish uh, sausage processed or, or good processed food, but you know what we mean. The things full of refined carbohydrates and vegetable the, oil. The donut is, in my view, the, the donut is yeah. the, the, the sort of the perfect example of, of the, you know, the combination of oils, refined grain, and sugar. I mean, that thing that, is perfect. That, that is the pinnacle of, of future disease risk, I agree. But, um, but even, I mean, just loaves of, of white bread is refined carbohydrate. And once you destroy the structure of carbohydrates, uh, the cellular structure, they, they act on your gut hormones, your incretins, your insulin, and they basically cause a storm over time. So, so they're the first three, processed food, processed vegetable oils, refined carbohydrates. They're the biggies. And then you um, can eat whole foods, natural carbohydrates like the catavans, generally. More careful if you're already diabetic and you have sensitivity to carbohydrate, but whole food, natural, unsullied carbohydrates uh, in a low-carb diet. Protein then, get adequate and plenty of protein. Really believe in that. Animal food sources are better. Uh, Eggs, fish and all that, fantastic. Complete proteins. So make sure you're very adequate in that. Fat then, healthy ancestral uh, nutritious fats you know d k2 and all, all the foods that bring in all the vitamins with healthy fats excellent and then we go on to we have kind of three s's uh, sun supplements and uh, stress oh and sleep actually so a lot of people talk about sleep and it is important but a lot of people can't affect that but if you strive to get good sleep patterns and circadian rhythms, it will help a lot. People have halved their insulin sensitivity in studies by just getting reduced sleep for a couple of weeks in a row. So it is important, and stress management is important, and access to sun exposure um, for nitric oxide, uh, endothelial dilation, uh, or vascular dilation, all that stuff. So sun, access to sun if possible, or lamps, or worst case, get vitamin D at least. And then exercise, and again, we're very much in Ted Naiman's camp there. Uh, sorry, Zach, but <laughs> for the average guy, you know, you're obviously amazing, and, and you're doing incredible stuff, but for the average guy who's not going to do a lot of running, maybe, or treadmill, if they just do the routines of 15 or 20 minutes a few times a week with squats against the wall, press-ups, and light resistance training, they don't need gear it will give a huge benefit and maybe virtual skipping. They can even watch the television while they're doing it. You know, we, we, we got to address the average person who will never really become an athlete and look after them. So kind of resistance training, easier to do the better. Um, and I think there was another one, but I can't recall. But uh, putting those together and being successful in them, the pitfalls are when you don't really understand what you're doing. If you're given a list without grasping why, and how and the pitfalls you can hit, you can awful fail and drift. That's why all the diet studies fail. They all drift back and just slowly, like smoking, drift back. And I think when you read the book 
and you understand and grasp some of the basics, it, it empowers you and it, it, it gives you the weaponry to persist until you really see the benefits and then you'll never go back, just like none of us in the low-carb movement go back. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We talked about this quite a bit with Michaela Peterson yesterday, and it was, uh, you know, there's definitely people who listen to that type of information and think, well, I feel fine, and I ate a donut for breakfast this morning. Um, and uh, part of it is like this kind of normalization, I think, of not optimizing, where they've been kind of in this like state of, uh, not necessarily really poor health, but just not quite optimal. So they they have they've kind of normalized the way they feel as being more or less optimal or just fine. And then you know they go through a process like you described, and they realize what a normal, really good, optimized you know day actually feels like. And then that's those are the people that don't turn back. Those are the people that say, you know, feeling this good is worth doing all these um, what we consider interventions, but really are just like real eating and real living. Exactly, Zach. And that's the thing. It's like the smoker who figures, look, I can still go running and and the smokes are not affecting me. But when they do actually manage to give up, they realize, well, one thing is after a week, all the cravings that they thought would be impossible, they're actually forgetting about them for most of the day. And they go, wow. And then they begin to feel much better, breathe easier. And they realize, oh, I'm so glad to be free. So I think by following the book, it's freedom, really. You're, you're, not, you're not suffering or giving something up. You're achieving a freedom, a performance, a vitality. You're, you're getting a life back that is way better. And that, that's huge because you don't just extend your life by maybe 10 or 15 years by making the switch from the bad place. But maybe 30 or 40 years of your remaining life are all much better years. So, I mean, add it all up. It's a huge game to play for. It's it's just it's just enormous. <laughs> hey, Ivor, I've got just if you're generous enough for one other topic. Um, you know, you I don't know if it was you and, and Jeff. I mean, that's how for, certainly I came to know about this fellow. This guy named you know Dr. Joseph Kraft, and you sort of made public, or at least a lot of people are aware of his work uh, that he did regarding insulin. And I think I think and he's recently died. You know, at something like 99 years of age, and he he made a huge contribute contribution to the knowledge and largely went under unrecognized for that can you talk a little bit about your your interaction with him how you how you sort of hooked up with him and then how his work has been piggybacked on because i know people have kind of modified his work and looked at some different things there's been some researchers in either australia or new zealand that did some stuff with his studies and stuff like that. can you talk about him just briefly oh yeah i mean joe joe was fantastic i mean he was a, a devout christian an incredible man and uh, nine children and uh, I think he had a 60-plus-year marriage. Uh, and I know that's background, but he, he really, when he made his discoveries from a medical, being a medical captain in Panama in the World War II, he went on to become chairman emeritus and uh, the chairman of Department of Nuclear Medicine and Pathology in St. Joseph Hospital in, in Chicago. But essentially, he, in the 70s, uh, got access to... Uh, pharmacia's new insulin assays and with access to them and also his research on diabetes where he realized there was a huge amount of diabetes out there and he was fascinated by it he put the two together and began to test many people with post-glucose insulin assays 
And he actually ended up doing nearly 15,000 people. And he wrote a book about it, Diabetes Epidemic and You. But he realized after the first 500 or 1,000 that there's only five patterns of post-glucose insulin response common to all humans. And essentially four of them mean you have a form of diabetes. And measuring glucose does not diagnose diabetes. He had no respect after thousands of, of patients with the glucose assays because he said it's way too late. It's the hyperinsulin patterns that show when you first move into diabetic physiology. And as a pathologist, he knew what that meant, right, for atherosclerosis. So he essentially created a huge body of work and he was not accepted anywhere because the Di American Diabetes Association did not want to, in his words, touch it with a 10-foot pole. Uh, they did not want to see diabetes type 2 as an insulin disease. They'd already decided it was a glucose disease, and this was disrupting the apple cart. So huge resistance all over the world. All of the experts that got involved with them found the same thing. No one wanted to hear about hyperinsulinemia because it disrupted the paradigms and the organizations were now already very powerful. A bit like cholesterol versus insulin. Uh, but it was amazing work. Uh, he was an amazing man. I found out about him from uh, Professor Grant Schofield in New Zealand, where Catherine Crofts and Prof. Schofield are continuing his work with his database and producing more papers on this. Uh, and I, I found out I rang his office thinking he would passed. And I got a voicemail the next day from this elderly man. And myself and Dr. Gerber got tickets to Chicago and we went there to interview him. And it's on YouTube, and um, we actually captured, yes, this incredible work, and otherwise it would have kind of been lost. So delighted to know him. He died at 95 last year, um, but a great innings. And uh, he was truly emotional, and it was very um, touching for me also uh, that he was so appreciative that his work now could, could get into the Internet age and YouTube because that was something that was close to him. So he would have passed really without having his work been been moved on for another generation. So I'm hugely proud, uh, myself and Jeff, to have been able to capture that. Yeah, I mean, that 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 certainly has done, you know, humanity a favor. You know, it's it's kind of a shame. But the, the nice things today is uh, we've got this, this huge social media, uh, interconnectedness and, and and I think what's happening is it's like a wildfire. I mean, this stuff, all these new ideas are, are, you know, good or bad, whether they work or not, they're getting tested and they're not being shelved and you know stuck in some closet somewhere because there's so many people that are interested in this stuff. And I think that's the, I think that that's what we're seeing. We're seeing this this all the all these people that are interested because everyone, you know, we talk about you know skin in the game. I know that's a popular, uh, you know. Uh, sentiment these days and there's so many people out there that have that have skin in the game via their own health i can't tell you how many patients i would have that it would have some weird disease that i'd maybe maybe seen once or twice in my career and they knew more about it than i did because they lived with that stuff and i mean they become the the de facto experts you know when when you're living with a disease you learn a hell of a lot about it if you're intellectually curious and you become very uh, a very good resource, and so I think that's that we've got you know all these people now that are connected and they're kind of bringing together. And some of it, some of it's dead ends, and some of it's silliness, and some of it's obvious, you know, just kind of out there. But there's 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 uh, some cores of truth in that stuff, and I think it's starting to, you know, that stuff is rising up as as we see those things repeatedly 
you know, coming to the surface and, and consistently getting good, just like the engineering thing. If, it, if it's true, it's going to continue to, uh, to, to show, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, what, what it's about. Yeah. Well said. And as we said at the start, democratization of medical science and all of this stuff, empowering people to, to explore themselves and to debate and discuss openly, unlike the cancer thing where they want to shut it down, but, but it's not going to be shut down. The internet has allowed all of this. It, it's a brave new world. <laughs> I think that's an excellent <laughs> a reference to Aldous Huxley, but I mean I think it's a great that's a that's an excellent uh, uh, way to close this thing out there, Zach. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks again for coming on, Ivor. It was uh, our pleasure to have you, and um, like a seemingly all our guests here, we're all, we're welcome back anytime. It was great to have you here. Absolutely. No, the pleasure's all mine, Zach, and uh, privilege to talk to you guys, the uh, the ultra, ultra endurance guy and the uh, ultra crazy carnivore doctor, right? That's right. <laughs> We're definitely on the, on the fringes here. Hey, Ivor, just uh, just, uh, just for housekeeping, uh, tell everybody the name of your book again, and then tell us where people can follow you and, and follow your work. Right, okay. The book is Eat Rich, Live Long. It's on all the Amazons around the world. It's in Costco in the States and Barnes and & Noble, and I think it's all over the place if, if you want to get it. And then if you, the movie, if you Google Widowmaker CAC, those two separate words, you'll hit the viewing of the a slightly shorter version of the movie. And then if you just Google my name, to be honest, you'll hit the Twitter where we have fun. And the YouTube, where I have lots of interviews, video interviews, and talks, all free. So, yeah, just Google Ivor Cummins, and you'll hit all of this stuff. <laughs> awesome. We'll link to all that stuff in the show notes as well. Oh, and one last thing. I, I'm being directly supported now by the Irish Heart Disease Awareness Charity, set up by David Bobbitt. 100% philanthropy, no conflicts of interest. Uh www.ihda.ie so in fairness that's enabling me to, to do all of this work to be quite honest it's huge well it's awesome to hear that good good for you and uh h is h <laughs> oh sorry h i h d a dot i e yeah <laughs> no, I, i'm just kidding i know but that's uh that's great excellent Hey folks, thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at sbakermd that's at s-b-a-k-e-r-m-d we're both also on instagram where you can find me at zach bitter that's at z-a-c-h-b-i-t-t-e-r and for sean it's at sean baker 1967 that's at s-h-a-w-n-b-a-k-e-r 1967 thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.